0: Chapter 7 of Our Vanishing Wildlife. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Our Vanishing Wildlife by William T. Hornaday. Chapter 7 The Gorillas of Destruction. We have now to deal with the Gorillas of Destruction. In warfare, a gorilla or bushwhacker is an armed man who recognizes none of the rules of civilized warfare, and very often has no commander. In France he is called a franc tireur or free-shooter. The guerrilla goes out to live on the country, to skulk, to war on the weak, and never attack save from ambush, or when the odds clearly are on his side. His military status is barely one remove from that of the spy the meat-shooters, who harry the game and other wildlife in order to use it as a staple food supply, the Italians, negroes, and others, who shoot song-birds as food. The plume-hunters, and the hide-and-tusk-hunters all over the world are the guerrillas of the army of destruction. Let us consider some of these grand divisions in detail. Here is an inexorable law of nature, to which there are no exceptions. No wild species of bird, mammal, reptile, or fish, can withstand exploitation for commercial purposes. The men who pursue wild creatures for the money or value there is in them, never give up. They work at slaughter when other men are enjoying life, or are asleep. If they are persistent, no species on which they fix the evil eye escapes extermination at their hands. Does any one question this statement? If so, let him turn backward, and look at the list of dead and dying species. The Division of Meat Shooters contains all men who sordidly shoot for the frying-pan, to save bacon and beef at the expense of the public, or for the markets. There are a few wilderness regions so remote and so difficult of access that the transportation of meat into them is a matter of much difficulty and expense. There are a very few men in North America who are justified in living off the country, for short periods. The genuine prospectors always have been counted in this class. But all miners who are fully located, all lumbermen and railway builders, certainly are not in the prospector's class. They are abundantly able to maintain continuous lines of communication for the transit of beef and mutton. Of all the meat-shooters, the market gunners who prey on wild fowl and ground game birds for the big city markets are the most deadly to wildlife. Enough geese, ducks, brant, quail, ruffed grouse, prairie chickens, heath hens, and wild pigeons have been butchered by gunners and netters for the market to have stocked the whole world. No section containing a good supply of game has escaped. In the United States— The great slaughtering grounds have been Cape Cod, Great South Bay, New York, Currituck Sound, North Carolina, Marsh Island, Louisiana, the southwest corner of Louisiana, the sunk lands of Arkansas, the lake regions of Minnesota, the prairies of the whole Middle West, Great Salt Lake, the Klamath Lake region, Oregon, and Southern California. The output of this systematic bird slaughter has supplied the greedy game markets of Boston, New York, Philadelphia, Washington, Baltimore, Chicago, New Orleans, St. Louis, Salt Lake City, San Francisco, Portland, and Seattle. The history of this industry, its methods, its carnage, its profits, and its losses, would make a volume. But we cannot enter upon it here— Beyond reasonable doubt, this awful traffic in dead game is responsible for at least three-fourths of the slaughter that has reduced our game birds to a mere remnant of their former abundance. There is no influence so deadly to wildlife as that of the market gunner, who works six days a week. From sunrise until sunset, hunting down and killing every game bird that he can reach with a choke-bore gun. During the past five years, several of the once great killing grounds have been so thoroughly shot out, that they have ceased to hold their former rank. This is the case with the Minnesota lakes, the sunk lands of Arkansas, the Klamath lakes of Oregon, and I think it is also true of Southern California. The Klamath lakes have been taken over by the government as a bird refuge. Currituck Sound, at the northeastern corner of North Carolina, has been so bottled up by the Bayne Law of New York State, that Currituck's greatest market has been cut off. Last year only one-half the usual number of ducks and geese were killed, and already many professional duck and branch shooters have abandoned the business because the commission merchants no longer will buy dead birds. Very many enormous bags of game have been made in a day by market gunners but rarely have they published any of their records. The greatest kill of which I have ever heard occurred under the auspices of the Glen County Club in Southern California on February 5, 1906. Two men, armed with automatic shotguns, fired five shots apiece, and got ten geese out of one flock. In one hour they killed two hundred and eighteen geese, and their bag for the day was four hundred and fifty geese. The shooter, who wrote the story for publication on February 12th at Willows, Glen County, California, said, It being warm weather, the birds had to be shipped at once in order to keep them from spoiling. A photograph was made of the one-hour slaughter of two hundred and eighteen geese, and it was published in a Western magazine with CHB's story, nearly all of which will be found in Chapter 15. The reasons why market shooting is so deadly destructive to wildlife are not obscure. The true sportsman hunts during a very few days only each year. The market gunners shoot early and late, six days a week, month after month. When game is abundant, the price is low, and a great quantity must be killed in order to make it pay well. When game is scarce, the market prices are high, and the shooter makes the utmost exertions to find the last of the game in order to secure the big money. When game is protected by law, thousands of people with money desire it for their tables just the same, and are willing to pay fabulous prices for what they want, when they want it. Many a dealer is quite willing to run the risk of fines, because fines don't really hurt. They are only annoying. The dealer wishes to make the big profit and retain his customers. And besides, he reasons, if I don't supply him, someone else will. So what is the difference? When game is scarce, price is high, and the consumer's money ready, there are a hundred tricks to which shooters and dealers willingly resort to ship, and receive unlawful game without detection. It takes the very best kind of game wardens—genuine detectives, in fact to ferret out these cunning, illegal practices, and catch lawbreakers with the goods on them, so that they can be punished. Mind you, convictions cannot be secured at both ends of the line, save by the most extraordinary good fortune, and usually the shooter and shipper escape, even when the dealer is apprehended and fined. Here are some of the methods that have been practiced in the past in getting illegal game into the New York market. Ruffed grouse and quail have both been shipped in butter firkins, marked butter, and laterally, butter has actually been packed solidly on top of the birds. Ruffed grouse and quail very often have been shipped in egg crates, marked eggs. They have been shipped in trunks and suitcases, a very common method for illegal game birds all over the United States. In Oklahoma, when a man refuses to open his trunk for a game warden, the warden jealously gets out his brace and bit, and bores an hole into the lower story of the trunk. If dead birds are there, the tell-tale auger quickly reveals them. Three years ago I was told that certain milk wagons on Long Island made daily collections of dead ducks intended for the New York market, and the drivers kindly shipped them by express from the end of the route once upon a time a new york man gave notice that on a certain date he would be in a certain town in st lawrence county new york with a palace horse car to buy horses car and man appeared there as advertised very ostentatiously he bought one horse and had it taken aboard the car before the gaze of the admiring populace at night when the a p had gone to bed many men appeared and into the horseless end of the car They loaded thousands of ruffed grouse. The game warden who described the incident to me said, That man pulled out for New York with one horse and half a carload of ruffed grouse. Whenever a good market exists for the sale of game, as sure as the world, that market will be supplied. Twenty-six states forbid by law the sale of their own protected game, but twenty of them do not expressly prohibit the sale of game stolen from neighboring states. That is a very, very weak point in the laws of all those states. A child can see how it works. Take Pittsburgh as a case in point. In the winter and spring of 1912, the State Game Commission of Pennsylvania found that quail and ruffed grouse were being sold in Pittsburgh, in large quantities. The state laws were well enforced, and it was believed that the birds were not being killed in Pennsylvania. Some other state was being robbed. The game commission went to work, and in a very short time certain game dealers of Pittsburgh were arrested. At first they tried to bluff their way out of their difficulty, and even went as far as to bring charges against the game warden whom the commission had instructed to buy some of their illegal game, and pay for it. But the net of the law tightened upon them so quickly and so tightly that they threw up their hands and begged for mercy. It was found that those Pittsburgh game dealers were selling quail and grouse that had been stolen in thousands from the state of Kentucky. Between the state game laws, working in lovely harmony with the Lacey Federal Law that prohibits the shipment of game illegally killed or sold, the whole bad business was laid bare, and signed confessions were promptly obtained from the shippers in Kentucky. At that very time a good bill for the better protection of her game was before the Kentucky legislature, and a certain member was vigorously opposing it, as he had successfully done in previous years. He was told that the state was being robbed, but refused to believe it. Then a signed confession was laid before him, bearing the name of the man who was instigating his opposition. His friend, who confessed that he had illegally bound and shipped to Pittsburgh, over five thousand birds. The objector literally threw up his hands, and said, I have been wrong. Let the bill go through. And it went. Before the passage of the Bain Law, New York City was a fence for the sale of grouse illegally killed in Massachusetts, Connecticut, Pennsylvania, New Jersey, and I know not how many other states. The Bain Law stopped all that business, abruptly and forever— And if the ruffed grouse, quail, and ducks of the eastern states are offered for sale in Chicago, Cincinnati, Baltimore, and Washington, the people of New York and Massachusetts can at least be assured that they are not to blame. Those two states now maintain no fences for the sale of game that has been stolen from other states. They have both set their houses in order, and set two examples for forty other states to follow the remedy for all this miserable game-stealing law-breaking business is simple and easily obtained let each state of the united states and each province and canada enact a bane law absolutely prohibiting the sale of all wild native game and the thing is done but nothing short of that will be really effective it will not do at all to let state laws rest with merely forbidding the sale of game protected by the state for that law is full of loopholes it does much good service yes but what earthly objection can there be in any state to the enactment of a law that is sweepingly effective and which cannot be evaded save through the criminal connivance of officers of the law by way of illustration to show what the sale of wild game means to the remnant of our game and the wicked slaughter of non-game birds to which it leads consider these figures Dead birds found in one cold storage house in New York in 1902. Snow buntings, 8,058. Sandpipers, 7,607. Plover, 5,218. Snipe, 7,003. Yellowlegs, 788. Grouse, 7,560. Quail, 4,385. Ducks, one thousand seven hundred fifty-six, Bobolinks, two hundred eighty-eight, Woodcock, ninety-six. The fines for this lot, if imposed, would have amounted to one million one hundred sixty-eight three hundred fifteen dollars. Shortly after that seizure, American quail became so scarce that in effect they totally disappeared from the banquet tables of New York. I cannot recall having been served with one since 1903 but the little Egyptian quail can be legally imported and sold when officially tagged. Few persons away from the firing line realize the far-reaching effects of the sale of wild game. Here are a few flashes from the searchlight. At Hangkau, China, Mr. C. William Beebe found that during his visit in 1911, over forty six thousand pheasants of various species were shipped from that port on one cold storage steamer to the london market and this when english pheasants were selling in the covent garden market at from two to three shillings each for fresh birds in nineteen ten one thousand two hundred ptarmigan from norway bound for the chicago market passed through the port of new york not by any means for the first or last shipment of the kind the epicures of Chicago are being permitted to comb the game out of Norway. In 1910, 70,000 dozen Egyptian quail were shipped to Europe from Alexandria, Egypt. Just why that species has not already been exterminated is a zoological mystery. But extermination surely will come some day, and I think it will be in the near future. The cost of China has been raked and scraped for wild ducks to ship to New York prior to the passage of the Law, I have forgotten the figures that once were given me, but they were an astonishing number of thousands for the year. The division of negroes and poor whites will kill song, and other birds indiscriminately will be found in a separate chapter. The Division of Resident Game Butchers This refers to the men who live in the haunts of big game, where wardens are the most of the time totally absent and where bucks, does, and fawns of hoofed big game may be killed in season and out of season with impunity. It includes guides, ranchmen, sheepherders, cowboys, miners, lumbermen, and floaters generally. In times past, certain taxidermists of Montana promoted the slaughter of wild bison in the Yellowstone Park, and it was a pair of rascally taxidermists who killed, or caused to be killed, in Lost Park, in 1897, the very last bison of Colorado. It seems to be natural for the minds of men who live in America in the haunts of big game to drift into the idea that the wild game around them is all theirs. Very few of them recognize the fact that every other man, woman, and child, in a given state or province, has vested rights in its wild game. It is natural for a frontiersman to feel that because he is in the wilds, he has a God-given right to live off the country. But today that idea is totally wrong. If some way cannot be found to curb that all-pervading propensity among our frontiersmen, then we may as well bid our open-field big game a long farewell. For the deadly residents surely will exterminate it, outside the game preserves. The residents are, in my opinion— about ten times more destructive than the sportsman. A sportsman in quest of large game is in the field only from ten to thirty days. All his movements are known, and all his trophies are seen and counted. His killing is limited by law, and upon him the law is actually enforced. Often a resident hunts the whole twelve months of the year, for food, for amusement, and for trophies to sell. Rarely does a game warden reach his cabin— because the wardens are few, the distance is great, and the frontier cabins are widely scattered. Mr. Carl Pickhart told me of a guide in Newfoundland, who had a shed in the woods hanging full of bodies of caribou, and who admitted to him that while the law allowed him five caribou each year, he killed each year about twenty-five. Mr. J. M. Phillips, knows of a mountain in British Columbia, once well stocked with goats, on which the goats have been completely exterminated by one man who lives within easy striking distance of them, and who finds goat meat to his liking. I have been reliably informed that in 1911, at Haha Lake, near Grand Bay, Saguenay District, P. Q., one family of six persons killed thirty-four woodland caribou and six moose. This meant the waste of about 14,000 pounds of good meat, and the death of several female animals. In 1886 I knew a man named Owens, who lived on the head of Sunday Creek, Montana, who told me that in 1884 to 1885 he killed thirty-five mule deer for himself and family. The family ate as much as possible, the dogs ate all they could, and in the spring the remainder spoiled. Now there is not a deer, an antelope, or a sage-grouse within fifty miles of that lifeless waste. Here is a Montana object lesson on the frame of mind of the resident hunter, copied from Outdoor Life magazine, Denver, for February 1912. It is from a letter to the editor, written by C. B. Davis. November 27th, 28th, 29th, and 30th, 1911 will remain a red-letter day with a half-thousand men for years to come. These half-thousand men gathered along the border of the Yellowstone National Park, near Gardiner, Montana, at a point known as Buffalo Flats, to exterminate elk. The snow had driven the elk down to the foothills, and Buffalo Flats is on the border of the park and outside the park. The elk entered this little valley for food. Like hungry wolves— Shooters, not hunters, gathered along the border, waiting to catch an elk off the reservation, and kill it. On November 27th, about 1,500 elk crossed the line, and the slaughter began. I have not the data of the number killed this day, but it was hundreds. On the 28th, 22 stepped over and were promptly executed. Like Custer's band, not one escaped. On the evening of the twenty-eighth, six hundred were sighted just over the line, and the army of one hundred twenty-five brave men entrenched themselves for the battle, which was expected to open next morning. Before daylight of the twenty-ninth, the battle began. The elk were over the line, feeding on buffalo flats. One hundred and twenty-five men poured bullets into this band of six hundred elk, till the ground was red with blood and strewn with carcasses and in their madness they shot each other. One man was shot through the ear, a close call. Another received a bullet through his coat-sleeve, and another was shot through the bowels, and can't live. My informer told me he participated in the slaughter, and while he would not take fifty dollars for what he saw, and the experience he went through, yet he would not go through it again for one thousand dollars. When my informer got back to Gardner that day, there were four sleigh-loads of elk, each load containing from twenty to thirty-five elk, besides thirty-two mules and horses carrying one to two each. This was only a part of the slaughter. Hundreds more were carried to other points, and this was only one day's work. Hundreds of wounded elk wandered back into the park to die, and others died outside the park. The station at Livingston, Montana, for a week looked like a packing-house. Carcasses were piled up on the trunks and depot platform. The baggage cars were loaded with elk going to points east and west of Livingston. Maybe this is all right. Maybe the government can't stop the elk from crossing the line. Maybe the elk were helped over. But it strikes me there is something wrong somewhere. The Division of Hired Laborers The scourge of lumber camps in Big Game territory, the mining camps, and the railroad builders is a long story, and if told in detail it would make several chapters. Their awful destructiveness is well known. It is a common thing for the boss to hire a hunter to kill Big Game to supply the hungry outfit and save beef and pork. The abuses arising from this source easily could be checked, and finally suppressed. A ten-line law would do the business, forbidding any person employed in any camp of sheepmen, cattlemen, lumbermen, miners, railway laborers, or excavators to own or use a rifle in hunting wild game, and forbidding any employer of labor to feed these laborers, or permit them to be fed, on the flesh of wild game mammals or birds. Camp laborers are not pioneers, not by a long shot. They are soldiers of commerce, and makers of money. A Mountain Sheep Case in Colorado The state of Colorado sincerely desires to protect and perpetuate its slender remnant of mountain sheep. But, as usual, the lawless miscreant is abroad to thwart the efforts of the guardians of the game. Every state that strives to protect its big game has such doings as this to contend with in the winter of nineteen eleven to nineteen twelve a resident poacher brought into grant colorado a lot of mountain sheep meat for sale and he actually sold it to residents of that town the price was six cents per pound a lot of it was purchased by the railway station agent i have no doubt that the same man who did that job which was made possible only by the cooperation of the citizens of grant will try the same poaching and selling game next winter, unless the state game commissioner is able to bring him to book. A Wyoming case in point. As a fair sample of what game wardens and the general public are sometimes compelled to endure through the improper decisions of judges, I will cite this case. In the Shoshone Mountains of northern Wyoming, about 50 miles or so from the town of Cody, in the winter of 1911 to 1912, A man was engaged in trapping coyotes. It was currently reported that he had been driven out of Montana and Idaho. He had scores of traps. He baited his traps with the flesh of deer, elk calves, and grouse—all illegally killed and illegally used for that purpose. A man of my acquaintance saw some of this game-meat actually used as described. The man was a notorious character— and cruel in the extreme. Finally a game warden caught him red-handed, arrested him, and took him to Cody for trial. It happened that the judge on the bench had once trapped with him, and therefore he set the game-killer free, while the game warden was roasted. The wolf-trapper once took into the mountains a horse, to kill and use as bear-bait. The animal was blind in one eye, and because it would not graze precisely where the wolfer desired it to remain, he deliberately destroyed the sight of its good eye, and left it for days without the ability to find water. Think of the fate of any wild animal that unkind fate places at the mercy of such a man. End of chapter 7